Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Ryan Pale, and uh, I'm the community outreach pastor. Um, I work, I've worked here since, uh, I've worked at Grace since maybe 2003, I believe. And then as of last May, I became uh, the, the community outreach guy. And um, uh, one of the things that was so remarkable to me um, about that was I sort of had this, um, I heard Tim Keller up in New York City at Redeemer Church. He said that he wanted the church, his church, and I want our church to be the type of place where the city looks in on us and they say, I don't necessarily, I may not necessarily believe what they believe, but man, I'm glad they're here. And that's one of the things when we start thinking about what we want to do with community outreach, that's the type of presence that we want to have here. So what I want to do is I want to sort of hijack my own time to give you a deep and profound thank you for your participation in, uh, in the Christmas co-op a few weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, uh, just want to relay the sort of, sort of the foundation for how pivotal it was for your donations, for your time, and for your energy, and for your prayer. Um, essentially what we wanted to do is we wanted to pro- provide an alternative for, for charitable giving. We wanted to be able to provide for those who, for whatever reason, couldn't have a, um, a Christmas with presents. But we didn't want to just give the presents away. We wanted to actually empower the people, the clients, to enable them to, to have a buying experience, a shopping experience. So what we did, we came before you, we stood up here, and we said, Grace Bible Church, would you please give us new stuff, new toys for these children in our community? And you guys showed up. Uh, Chris McGuffey, a.k.a. Guff, said, um, I want to. Um, I want there to be so many gifts that you can't even see Ryan's desk, and um, and I'll tell you that was fulfilled. My office. Not only could you not see my desk, you couldn't even walk in my office. It was beautiful. And then we had our um, on the 16th, December 16th and 17th, and we had the event. Basically, our foyer looked like a Walmart. It was awesome. The cool thing about that was we got to partner with Head Start, with College Station Head Start, which is a phenomenal program, and we um, had the families that are in Head Start, we let them know about what was going on, and we invited them to come and to shop with us. So they got to buy these great gifts that you provided at a crazy discounted price. Um, So that was this past year, and we got to do some really great things. We got great feedback. The foyer was full of people, and these are people that don't typically come into the, um, the doors and the walls of Grace Bible Church. And they were here and they were with us. We met some remarkable people, some people who are so full of life and so full of faith and have such a great and profound walk with the Lord. We learned so much from them. So that was this year. This next year where we want to go is we want to make it more of a co-op. We want to cooperate. We want this to be uh, something that we do with the clients who come in. So next year what we're going to do is we're going to have all the people who came this year. We're going to give them a call and we're going to say, hey, I'm glad that you really enjoyed it this past year. Um, Next year what we want to do is we want for you to volunteer. We want you to be in charge of setup. We want you to be in charge of wrapping. We want you to do all these things. And when you come and you volunteer with us, then we're going to give you sort of the pick of the toys. You get to come on a first night, and that's going to be sort of your incentive to come and to, uh, and to volunteer with us. So we want you to participate. And yes, praise the Lord, we get to serve with them. We get to serve alongside the people. We get to learn from them, and we get to encourage one another. So all that to say, I want to, give, I want to sort of hijack my time and spend some time telling you thank you. The, um, the G.I. Joes and the Legos and the, the trips to Target or Walmart that y'all, um, that y'all made um, contributed greatly to our community. So really, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your donations. Okay, that's all I'm going to say for that until I say something else um, about that. Okay, 
So as I was thinking about what, what I was going to talk about today, we're in a season of newness. You have a new year. You have New Year's resolutions. You have uh, newness, newness, newness. We're reflecting on um, how we want to sort of wipe the slate clean. Some of us want to forget 2014, and we want to start with a clean slate on, uh, for 2015. And so as I was thinking about that, I thought, oh my gosh, let's talk about what the Bible talks about with newness. Let's talk about the new creation. So today we're going to spend our time in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, we're going to hear how Paul describes newness for the believer. And as I was thinking about this uh, talk, I was reflecting on my own experience with, um, with New Year's resolutions. And I'll tell you, I have a horrible track record with New Year's resolutions. Usually, for me, it involves some um, type of diet or weight loss or get in shape or something to that effect. Um, and I um, have a great plan. I have a great vision. And it lasts until January 1st. Um, around noon, because at the beginning of January, you have bowl games. And when you have bowl games, you have chips and salsa and dips and desserts and all that stuff. And so, uh, so that's really not fair to have the bowl games at that time of the year when we're trying to do our New Year's resolutions. I fail miserably every year. Well, two weeks later, then you have the national championship another bowl game. So I start to get some traction, then I fail again. Well, a couple weeks later, then you have the Super Bowl, get some traction, and then, and then lose again. So, so this doesn't work out well for me ever. And so, uh, so now I want to kind of think through, okay, what, okay so what's, what's going on there? What's the problem? And uh, as I think about New Year's resolutions, I'm, I'm reminded of sometimes we can use our New Year's resolutions. Yes, they're a vision for our life. They're a vision of how we can become a better version of who God created us to be. But a lot of times they just kind of become behavior modification. Essentially what we want to do is we want to just change these certain behaviors without addressing the heart and the mind behind the behaviors, which led us to a point of actually having to make New Year's resolutions. So there's something deeper to our goals, and we want to just change it. We want to buy a gym membership, look up diets or lifestyles. We want to look up these things, and then without addressing the lack of self-control or whatever it is that we have back here. And what I want to talk about this morning is how Paul actually addresses back here what is the heart and what is the mind and what is the soul behind our behaviors that we want to change as we make New Year's resolutions. So we're going to talk about uh, 2 Corinthians 5. If you have the Bible that Grace provides, which is underneath a seat, some seats, not under many, um, it's on uh, page uh, 142 on the New Testament side. I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. Paul says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or she. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We're going to spend some time on that. For, for some people, honestly, as we read that text, some of us just need to hear God no longer holds our trespasses against us. And this, if that's what you need to hear this morning, sit on that and think on that. Because a lot of us come into these walls and we experience condemnation and hurt and pain. And we continue to be enslaved to our own condemnation and guilt. So some of you may need to reflect on that. I'm not going to get to that this morning, but, but sit with that. What we're going to talk about is, is sort of a broad picture of what's happening in First and Second Corinthians. As I look at these two books, I kind of sit back and I say... 
This looks a lot like a parent arguing with a teenager. It doesn't happen to anybody in here. I'm sure no parents in here have argued with teenagers. I hear that happens uh, to other people, but nope, not to anybody in here. So I know this may be falling on deaf ears, but it's a lot like you have Paul who's over here. He established this church. He gave birth to this church. He created this church in Corinth and he loves them deeply. He loves the church at Corinth and the other churches that he planted. He loves them. They're new they're immature. They make just awful decisions. And so he kind of walks this balance between just calling them out and addressing the wrong decisions that they make, but also, I love you, and I'm grateful for who God has created you to be. And so the, there's a sort of tension. And then you have the, the church at Corinth, who is kind of like this teenager. They're, they're learning how to navigate the world, given all the temptations that are around them. They're learning how do you, how do you navigate relationships, What does it look like for me to grow, to grow in my independence from Paul, and to make mistakes? What does that look like? They're they're just doing horrible things. They've they've given in to peer pressure. They want to be a part of the popular crowd, and when they're not a part of the popular crowd, they're trying to get in with the popular crowd. They're participating in some crazy things, and so they essentially, they're rejecting Paul. Like, they know the things that they're supposed to be doing, They know what Paul has said, they know the message, they know it's true, but they continue to give in to their impulses. And so you have this sort of dynamic between a parent and a teenager that's going on as you step back and you read the book, and both are, and and the church is growing, and Paul is trying to show love and concern and care for them. So that's what's happening in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. If y'all remember from uh, from last semester, y'all learned all about the church in Corinth. Y'all learned about the craziness that they participated in. Y'all learned about lust. Y'all learned about greed. You learned about gossip. You learned about slander. You learned about lawsuits. You learned about all of these things so you know kind of what they're dealing with. Thank goodness we don't deal with that stuff anymore. So you learned about, through Blake's teaching and others' teaching, you learned about all this stuff. Um, One of the things that uh, Paul recognized, so he, he, he wrote that letter of 1 Corinthians to them. He, you know, he heard that all this stuff was happening, so he writes this letter to them, and he's saying, don't do that. Come on. You know better. 1 Corinthians. And then he um, goes away. He sees a little progress, then he goes away, goes back home, or goes on another missionary journey. And then he gets word again that there are some people who have infiltrated the church, and they have influenced the Corinthian church again. They've discredited him. And so Paul, heartbroken, crushed, he gets on his boat and he sails across the sea and he wants to address the church. And much like a teenager slams their door to the parent and says, I never want to see you again, they did the same thing to Paul. And they said, we don't want to have anything to do with you. They rejected him. And so he stops. This church that he loves deeply rejects him. So he goes back and he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians and, and he's essentially defending his message and his ministry. He's addressing the issues that, that they're criticizing him with because what happened in the church in, uh, in Corinth at this time was they invited some people into their fold that were unhealthy, that were dysfunctional. They called them, um, they called them super apostles, which is kind of funny, but essentially in kind of Greco-Roman times, everybody valued people who were great speakers. And so uh, they had these guys that would go into cities and, uh, and Corinth or Thessalonica and all these different places, and they would go and sit in the city square, the town square, and they would stand up on a box or something and just start saying stuff. And then people all around would be like, oh my gosh, he's saying stuff, and he sounds great. And so they would, these crowds would 
kind of be drawn to him by the effectiveness of his speech. And so, and then they're also, they realize, oh my gosh, this guy knows a lot too. And so the crowds would get bigger and bigger. And then what happened was you had the wealthy people who would come in and they'd say, oh my gosh, I want to hire you to say stuff on my behalf. I want you to be my lawyer. I want you to be my advocate. I want you to entertain at my parties or teach at my school. And so um, people were really attracted to them. And so not only did these people know how to speak well, they also knew their stuff. They could just demolish you in an argument, in a discussion because of how gifted they were. But not only were they great at what they say and what they know, they also were physically imposing dominant people. They could impose their will on you just because of their presence. These were powerful people. So you know these super apostles, they go into a church setting where they already see a crowd, a group of people gathered together, they're unified, and you see they come into that and they see opportunity awaits. And so they infiltrate this church and what they do is they realize, oh my gosh, this church, they're unified, they like this guy Paul, let's, let's mess with that. And so they discredit Paul's ministry and they say, I mean, was he really that great? Did he really do great things? Where is he now? Paul's clearly not here. He's left you. So they discredit his ministry, but then they also discredit his message. These were proud people, prideful people. And so they don't want to talk about weakness or suffering or any of that stuff. They want to talk about how great they are and how great you can be. So these are the super apostles, and the church buys into it. Ah, that makes sense. You have super apostles. The culture respects them. Everybody, um, they're successful. People are drawn to them. The crowds flock to them. They experience wealth. They experience all these wonderful things. And then you have Paul who boasts in his weakness, who talks about being shipwrecked, who talks about being heartbroken, who talks about a thorn in his flesh that he can't get rid of, who's okay with death, who talks about he's imprisoned and he's struggling. Super apostle and you have Paul. Who do you think the masses are going to flock to? That's exactly what happened in the church at Corinth. And Paul is crushed. So what the Corinthians began to do is they started to look at the outward appearance of man and they looked and they held these super apostles as the model of what we all should be and not necessarily what Paul in the gospel says we're to do. So this is exactly what's going on in the book. I'm a hist- I was a history major, English minor. I love background. I love story, all that stuff. I realize y'all don't. This is a great picture of what's going on in 2 Corinthians uh, right now. So we're going to move, move along. It says in verse 16, It says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. (laughs) Wow, that is clearly graphic design is not my gift. There's question marks. I also do exclamation points and clip art and all that stuff. So, um, okay, so um, what happened? 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17, something happened. So we have no longer, Paul uses words like we no longer look at people this way, now we look at them this way. There is a new creation. Newness has come. So what exactly happened that caused this transition of perspective that we have? Well, I'll tell you. I'm not just going to leave you there to guess and question. What happened was the gospel happened. What happened was that Paul comes into Corinth, he speaks to the church, and he says, let me tell you about this Jesus. He was 
fully God. He was also fully man and he dwelt among us. And he had this powerful ministry of restoring all things into the way that God intended them to be. And he infiltrated this world seeing that we were all led astray because of the decisions we've made or the things that we're a part of or the things that we say. We were all led astray. And so Jesus came in and he um, not only did he live and he reconciled, but then he died ultimately to reconcile us. And he was raised again to accomplish victory over death and over sin and to give us new life. So it doesn't just stop there though. It's not just Paul saying, okay, let me tell you about this historical person that that existed once. Now Paul is saying, now let me tell you how you participate in this story. Paul says, he tells the Corinthians, and he still tells us today, that we have alienated, we have been alienated from God. The things that we say, the things that we think, the things that we do, the things that we're part of, all these things are set, and the Bible even says that they're enmity against God. They're, they're against God. We're playing for the other team. We are against God because of Um, who we've chosen to become through our sin. But God doesn't just leave us there with that. He didn't just leave us marginalized, alienated out there, nor does He just automatically destroy us. What He does is He pays the ultimate price to go and to rescue us and to bring us back into fellowship and into connection with Him. This is what reconciliation is talking about that we read earlier. This is reconciliation. So this is the event that happened where the Corinthians decided, oh my gosh, I believe this stuff. Yes, I recognize my own brokenness. I recognize my own shortcomings. Um, I recognize that Jesus was who he said he was going to be. What do I do? And so they put their trust in him. And an identity change happens. There's newness. There's new creation. The Bible even uses words like adoption to finalize the relationship that happens when we believe in Jesus. The Bible uses language like we've been transferred from the kingdom of, kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from death into life. Something completely different has happened. A complete newness of ourself has already taken place when we believe and we trust in Christ. I kind of liken this identity change to, um, to being a new parent. Um, if you've ever been to uh, Target or to Kroger and, uh, and you weren't a parent and you see the kid who's ultimately uh, laying down on the floor screaming bloody murder, murder, throwing a temper tantrum, and the mom or the dad seems to not really be doing anything, then you kind of stand over there, you kind of let them know that you disapprove of the behavior, and then you whisper to your significant other, much like my wife and I did, oh my gosh, if we had kids, that would not happen. I'd like to see my kids try to do something like that in Walmart, I'll, and then you fill in the blank. Um, I'll take care of it. So um, my wife likes to say we were the absolute greatest parents we will ever be before we're parents <laughs> because we have no idea the complications that exist in trying to actually control another person. And we, <laughs> and we, don't, realize, we don't realize at the time that that's not possible, that there's no magic formula to, to, to allow for blind obedience. And so then we become parents and then we realize that there's more to the story. We see the whole thing differently. We realize that our kids are an extension of our own insecurities and that when people look at them, they're ultimately looking at and judging us. We don't realize how complicated that is. So when I become a parent, everything changes. 
I look at the world differently. I know that the world holds my babies. I know that the world holds my son and my daughter. And I'm looking around the world to see what it's going to do with them. Our kids go eight or nine houses down to play with neighbors. I want to know every neighbor that's in between us and them because I want to know what the world has for them on their way down there when they're outside of my care. I see the whole world differently. Paul's essentially saying this is exactly what happens when you become a believer in Christ is that everything changes. Your perspective on everything changes at that point. Specifically, what we're going to talk about is you have a new perspective of others. So remember the super apostles, they were um, renowned, they were respected, they were honored because of all these external things. They were revered because of their, their culture revered them, because they were intimidating, because they were terrifying. They were revered because of all these external things that were going on. And I want to say, we do the same thing today. Paul's saying, under this new perspective, we are family. You no longer honor people more because they have much or less because they have little. You honor everybody the way you honor your family for healthy families. <laughs> okay, So um, you honor everybody the way that you honor family. So, um, so we can all say, oh, well, yeah, of course, I'm not going to honor a wealthy person or a celebrity anymore. That's not true. Because how many times, like if you know a celebrity and you're like one person removed from them, you, how many times do you try to claim, oh, yeah, my best friend is friends with so-and-so, fill in the blank, or, um, or I saw Johnny Manziel came to a party that I was at, or whatever it is, we want to be affiliated with celebrity or even, oh my gosh, in churches. I remember um, when I was a college student and I went to Breakaway, I wanted to be be associated with, with, uh, <laughs> with Greg Mott or Ross King. So anytime I could kind of be associated with those guys, um, oh man, I hope he's not here. So any, anytime you can be associated with them, it's a good thing where you can uh, essentially, your status is increased because of who you are friends with. We do that today and we definitely do that in churches today. Who's friends with the pastor? Okay, but we do it on the other end too. So here we're comparing ourselves and we're saying, oh my gosh, this person's way better than me. I want to associate myself. Then you have on the other end, you have the people who don't have much, the people who are looked down upon because of maybe it's decisions they make. Maybe it's their lifestyle. Maybe it's the color of their skin. Maybe it's just whatever. There's different things. And we separate ourselves from them and we say, at least I'm not fill in the blank. So over here, we're suffering from comparison. Over here, we're suffering from pride. We've elevated ourselves above another person. Paul is saying in the new perspective, in a new creation, in a new identity, there's no room for that. Everybody has a seat at the table together. And we no longer give more honor or less honor based on the externals. Paul is saying, he's essentially downing the super apostles and saying, I don't care that they speak well. I don't care that they're strong. I don't care about any of these things. I care about the family of Christ. I want you to care about the family of Christ because you are, in fact, adopted. So first thing is that we have a new perspective of others. The second thing is we have a new perspective of ourself. Um, this is powerful. So if we see, if we no longer honor other people above ourselves based on their externals, we no longer are slaves to comparison. No longer do we say, this person does this better than I do, um, therefore I am worthless. Um, or anything even remotely close to that, we know there's no longer enslavement to comparison. 
It's gone. It's done with. We understand ourselves as adopted by the king, by the creator of the universe. Paul wants us to really understand and to embrace what it means to be adopted, a child of God in the family of God. Um, there was a study in the, um, in the 50s. Y'all probably, some of y'all know way more about this than I do, but there was a study in the 50s that came out. They were just starting to kind of get into neuroscience and brain development and all these things. And so, of course, what do we do? We tested monkeys. And so um, they had this baby, cute little monkey that was, um, uh, that was kind of learning the world and uh, trying to navigate that. So what they did was they put him in a room. They put this monkey in a room, and they provided a sort of two-dimensional picture of a sort of monkey type of thing. Um, and from this, they, the monkey received bananas and water and sort of nutrients to help him you know, physically flourish. And then on this side of the room, they had a three-dimensional, almost like a, um, a stuffed animal monkey, something that the baby monkey could run and cuddle and embrace and experience some type of love with. So what they did was they kind of let this monkey understand these relationships and who do you go to for what and all those things. And um, the monkey, um, uh, they put him in a room one day after he kind of developed these understandings. Put this monkey in a room. They had this big object there that just terrified this monkey. And so when the monkey was in there with a two-dimensional mom that just provided the nutrients and no love, they, um, this monkey was terrified of the object ran away, was scared, was skittish, was jumpy, um, didn't want to have anything to do with it. But when they put the monkey in that room with the terrifying object, with the three-dimensional mom, the monkey was terrified, ran to the mom, sat, cuddled, held, all that stuff for a little bit, and then got a little bit closer to the terrifying object, and then came back to mom and cuddled and loved and embraced and they got a little bit closer, did the same thing, started to kind of touch it briefly and then run to mom um, and, and come back. And then ultimately what the monkey does is he, the monkey begins to be unafraid by that object because the monkey felt the presence and the power of the love of his mom. So when we become adopted as sons and daughters of the living king, that becomes our anchor we can navigate the world of fear, of hurt, of suffering because we know that we have the powerful love of the Father with us everywhere we go. We can venture into unknown. We can venture into darkness and difficulty and isolation and loneliness and insecurity. We can venture into these things because we know and we understand the love of the Father is there to anchor us and to allow us to not be driven by our fears and our insecurities. This is very real even right now. Um, As I stand here and I'm speaking, everything in me wants so badly to win your approval. I want the laugh. I want the, um, the, oh, great, that was great, and that was wonderful. I want all these things. I want to stand up here and be approved by all of you. Impossible. Um, And I can be driven by my own insecurity, and so I have to, at the end of the day, be reminded I need to be faithful to the Father. I need to be faithful to the Word of God. And what happens beyond that happens. I can't control that, but I need to be anchored into my identity as a son of God, a son of the living God. So our perspective of ourself changes. We no longer have to be fearful and scared based on what this world has for us because we are loved by the Father. Um, I want to talk about uh, our New Year's resolutions then. 
So we have, we talked about with New Year's resolutions, we talked about how, um, how they can be just sort of behavior modifiers where we just address a behavior but not the heart behind the behavior. And, and um, so I want us to figure out, okay, how would we do New Year's resolutions just a little bit differently? As believers in Christ, how do we do these a little bit differently? One is, um, this is having a vision for your life and becoming like I said, a better version of who God created you to be. These are great things. Maybe instead of New Year's resolution, maybe we call this discipleship. How am I going to grow who I am uh, based on who God has created me to be? So how do I do that? So maybe, maybe we ground it and use the language of discipleship or maybe just having a vision for our life. It just gives us a little bit different perspective. So then you think about... Um, you think about uh, the way that shit kind of plays out as you think about uh, with weight loss. That's the common one. So am I, um, am I losing weight? Am I trying to look good so that I gain the attention of somebody? Is it so that I will become happy when I get out of the shower and I pass by the mirror? Is it so that I'll be happier with what I see there? Is it maybe even that I want somebody to be jealous or somebody to um, uh, respect me or whatever it is? Is that why I want to lose weight? I, I would argue that's, that's not good. <laughs> Those things aren't helpful and they're not healthy for you. Those are not grounded in your new identity as a believer in Christ. Instead, something like weight loss, or there's others, something like weight loss, you say, oh my gosh, God has given me this body that while I carry it with me, I want to steward it well. I want to care for it well. You know, I think about um, my personal um, resolution. I'll just say it here for accountability or whatever. Um, so my New Year's resolution is I want to sleep more. Okay, how's that? Um, bowl season, halftime, I'm out. Um, so I want to sleep more um, is my New Year's resolution. So this is how it plays out. If I say I want to sleep more for New Year's in 2015, sleep more, what I can do is I can say, okay, I'm in bed by... I don't know, 11 o'clock, wake up at 6.45, that's the given, okay? So um, in bed at 11 o'clock, and then boom, it's done. So I'm going to be disciplined, I'm going to white-knuckle it, and I'm going to be in bed by 11 o'clock for the most part. The problem is, when I go to bed, my head hits the pillow and my brain starts running. So I'm uh, thinking, I'm worrying, I'm thinking about... um, what if somebody breaks into my house at night? What if I wake up to the smell of smoke? What if there's a shadowy figure standing over me uh, in the evening when I wake up? What if, um, what if I offended somebody three weeks ago by not, calling, by not returning their call, which happens? What if, um, what if I hurt somebody's feeling and have no idea, so my brain starts going and going and going? I have no control over it. So, um, so for me, when I say I want to sleep more, what I mean is I want to take my thoughts captive unto the obedience of Christ as I lay my head on the pillow. I want to not dismiss those, not to diminish the power of those thoughts. What I want to do is I want to say, Lord, I want to trust you. All of these things that I worry about and that, um, that affect me and that control me, I want to trust you in that. So for me, getting more sleep means that I trust God more. Does that make sense? So as you think through your New Year's resolutions, your new vision, discipleship, whatever it is, when you think through those things, understand what is the heart behind the behavior that you're trying to adjust or change. And that's where you'll find success and longevity and things like that is when you deal with that as opposed to just behavior. Okay, so New Year's resolutions. Let me know if you have any questions. Not really. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. 
He says, uh, and, and I'm just going to get to this. I'm going to spend a very little bit of time on this um, because, uh, you know, our problem is that we're so quick to rush to changing our behavior that we forget about the heart. I mean, that's what this whole thing's about. Um, and so uh, this is essentially Paul saying, okay, now here's what to do. You've been given a new identity, now do this. Um, and so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that because I, I don't think that's kind of our biggest need, but it is important um, here. He says, um, now these things... Uh, which is the new creation and all that stuff. These things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Essentially what he's saying here, um, I love uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, he says, there we go. He says something new has happened. So the new creation um, has happened. The new identity has happened. This is ha- has happened. Something new must now happen. Essentially he's saying the anchor of your soul has taken place. You've become a believer in Christ now. You take part in the reconciling work of God in this world. So all these resolutions and these new identities, these are great in and of ourselves, but they're not meant to be hoarded. They're meant to be shared with others. They're meant to be part of God's work in this world. So here's how that looks. I have been, when I reflect on my life, as we reflect on our lives, we say, oh my gosh, I've been forgiven much. As I think about the things that I've done, the things that I am doing, the things that I will continue to do um, that are at odds with God, that are hurtful, um, as I think about all these things, I realize that Christ, God was in Christ reconciling me, not holding my trespasses against me. I have been forgiven of much. Therefore, I need to be a forgiver, a radical forgiver of people I've been forgiven much, I forgive much, and I know for some of you coming off the holidays, this is real stuff. I know that this is difficult, and I know that there's, there's challenges, but for me to be a person who doesn't forgive as a believer in Christ, it runs contrary to my nature. It runs contrary to who I am at the core of who I am now as a new creation in Christ. I need to be a forget. Now, forgiveness looks a lot of different ways. That's why we have the church and um, the Holy Spirit to help us sort through what that looks like. But I need to be, and whatever that looks like in my life, I need to be moving toward forgiveness of people. Okay, so I also, I've been forgiven much. God has given me the most amazing gift of his son who died and rose again. I did nothing to deserve it. Absolutely nothing to get to take part in that. All I did was say yes. And I said, oh my gosh, yes, this is, yes, this makes sense. This is life. That's it. That's it. I'm, God has given me abundant grace. Now I, therefore, as a minister of reconciliation, which we are all called to do, I need to be a person who extends grace. Again, that looks a lot of different ways, but I need to be a person who extends grace to other people. I need to be willing to let go of some of my own rights for the sake of another person if God calls me to do that. And he, will, and he does, and he will. If I've been given much grace, I need to give much grace. I've been given truth. I've been given access to the word. I've been given the ability. I've been given so much love. Now I need to be the person who's sharing truth and love and the word with other people. So do you see how this new identity changes everything? 
We don't get to start over here with ministering to other people and with helping other people out. We have to be grounded here. Now, I realize I'm talking to a Bible church. I, I realize y'all know all this stuff already. We're talking about identity, and yes, we've heard that before. I realize that. But how many, if you take an honest assessment of yourself, how many of us camp out here helping other people and feeling so grateful to be a part of this great work that God is doing, we've completely neglected the fact that we have to receive daily from God, from Christ. We have to receive his presence. We have to be a part of, uh, of who he is and what he enables and empowers us to do. But we move forward before that. And so all we're doing is behavior modification. We're doing all these different things, and we need to receive that. So I challenge us as we're making, whether it's New Year's resolutions or whatever it is, I challenge us to stay grounded over here, to realize and to recognize and access our own personal identity change that's happened. So I encourage you guys as we wrap up, as we close this morning, I encourage you as you think through what God has for you in 2015 and not just that, but for your life, create a vision based on your identity in Him, based on who you are in in Christ, and then move forward in that. And I will say, we don't do it alone. (laughs) You have to have community uh, to do that with. Y'all bow with me. Lord, we give you thanks for creating us new. We thank you that you love us so deeply that you didn't spare even your own son. We thank you that you didn't just give us gifts, you gave us gifts that we would have the ability to give gifts to other people. We thank you so much for these things. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would um, help us to understand truly what it means to be an adopted son, an adopted daughter into the family and the fold of you. We give thanks to you for all these things. pray Uh, for peace for us and all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all are dismissed.